Well, this morning's sermon text and the name of Jesus we're going to study this morning uh, brings to mind the one thing, maybe, that everybody agrees on. I think there may be one thing that the whole world agrees on, and that is that there is something seriously wrong with the world. And all those who are honest with ourselves, I would say, agree that not only is there something very wrong with the world, but there's something very wrong with me as well. Now, this has become one of the deep knots that is tied in the modern heart, and I wonder if this is a hard thing for you to talk about, because the message that we are hearing from the modern world around us agrees with the scriptures that something is very wrong in the world, but the message of the modern world is, you have to save it, all right? Uh, the, the end zone at the end of the NFL football game says, end racism, right? Agreeing with the scriptures, there's something very wrong with the world. Racism should not be there. Uh, but saying as a, as a verbal command, you end racism. Because it is on you, they would say, to somehow convince the whole rest of the world to no longer be racist. Or I read a, a news headline this week. It was about global warming. And the headline was, here is how our nation's leaders plan to save the world. Uh, the idea is the whole place is lighting up on fire, but our leaders are stepping in. And evidently, Captain America is a world leader now, and they're going to save the world, right? The, they agree with the Bible that the place is on fire. Something is wrong but the burden the world would place upon you is it's your job to save it, right? When I was a kid, it was save the whales. And I remember as a kid thinking, we can do that, right? We could probably save the whales. And now it has exploded into save everything. And it's a crushing burden because if we're honest with ourselves, not only can I not save the world, but I need to be saved, Right? How, how is somebody as broken as me going to end racism or fix global warming or, for that matter, even save the whales, right? So the scriptures agree with the world that something is very wrong. But where the scriptures breathe life that the world cannot breathe is they would show us that someone who can save the world has come. And that someone does not have to be you. In fact, that someone is so great and so powerful that they can save not just the world and not just the whales, but even you. One of the words the scriptures uses for this whole idea of the world just being broken is darkness. It uses the word darkness to talk about the sin in the world, the suffering in the world, the evil in the world, and even the death that is in the world. And we are here this Advent season for these four weeks looking at these four double names given to Jesus in Isaiah 9-6, here by the light of these very candles to celebrate the fact that in this dark world, a, a saving light has come. The sunrise has come to visit us on high, as Zechariah says it. And this prophecy we're reading from Isaiah paints Jesus in this very way, a light into the dark world. He shows how Jesus is that light in the darkness, and then he gives to him four names that we are spending this month within. Last week, we looked at the name Wonderful Counselor, and this week, we will look at the name Mighty God. Let's read the whole prophecy here, Isaiah 9, 
verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of trampling warrior in battle tumult, Every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Those are the words of our God. And today we focus on two of them. One of the double names given to Jesus, Mighty God. Through that name... The Spirit of God calls everyone to look to Jesus for salvation from sin and from death. Now, the point of this prophecy is that this coming Messiah that they were waiting for, this Savior King that God would send to save them from their enemies, he would be a life-giving light into this dark world. He speaks very specifically to one form of darkness that they are suffering from. That is, they have been conquered by their enemies, and they are being oppressed by their enemies. But what he speaks of is much greater than the threat of Assyrian invasion and oppression. He speaks of an increase of government that will have no end. Now, he speaks even of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He speaks of a savior that could only be fulfilled by the man we read about in the Gospels, by Jesus Christ. And so the main point really there is that Jesus, as John says, shines like a light into the world. He is the light of the world, bringing life to all those who will trust in him. Now those names, those four names, give us four different angles from which we can see his glory. Like if you have a diamond ring and you look at it from every different angle, it shines differently and has a different brilliance and glory. And yesterday we looked at the name, not yesterday, last week we looked at the name Wonderful Counselor. Today we dive into that name, Mighty God, and we ask, how does that show us how he is a light into the darkness? Well, to understand that, first we'll look at the word mighty. Uh, that's a word for these people, that's a, it's a military word. In the ancient world, in a way that we really can't relate to, uh, you lived and died by the strength of the mighty men who fought for you. That's hard for us to connect with, right? We don't know what it's like to have war on our own soil. And we definitely don't know what it's like to lose war on our own soil. 
But the people of the ancient world knew that all the time. There were constantly new enemies rising up, coming through, wanting to not just take over, but oppress you because they did not like you. And your only hope was that perhaps a mighty eight-foot-tall warrior with a six-foot-long sword would rise up and rescue you, lead the army with courage and bravery, and then you could be safe. And so when this would happen, these mighty men would rise up and save the people. They would laud them with stories of their glory and their victory. And they would sing songs and chants to them because these people have delivered us. They have been our salvation. They have saved us. This is something we see in the scripture a lot. Because one of the threads, really two of the threads that are weaving through the Bible is that on one hand, God is a mighty God fighting for his people. He is in heaven, leading the hosts of heaven's army to fight for his people. And then at the same time on earth, God is raising up mighty men to fight for his people. So you got in heaven, God fighting for his people, and on earth, God raising up mighty men to fight for his people. For instance, one day Joshua, the leader of God's people and God's army, is going along, and he is stopped by a a glorious heavenly figure. It's called a man, actually. And Joshua's a little nervous. He says, are you for us or for our enemies? Like, whose side are you on? And the man says to him, no, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And it becomes really clear to Joshua that he is talking to a a heavenly being here. So there is this whole army of the Lord, and it has a commander, and it's always fighting for us. And Centuries later, the prophet Elisha is being attacked by a foreign army, uh, by Sisera. And he's not scared, though he's all alone. Uh, But his servant is there with him. They're alone together, and the servant is just petrified, scared. And Elisha prays to the Lord, Lord, will, will you open my servant's eyes that he might see what you're doing for us? And the servant's eyes are opened, and he sees the whole hosts of heaven's army riding down the mountainside to give them victory. Like the whole time, God is leading his armies behind the scene to fight for his people. But he's not just doing that. He's also raising up mighty men on earth to fight for his people. And so in the book of Joshua, they'll use that phrase. They'll say, Joshua says, me and the mighty men, we will go and we will fight for you. Uh, Or King David, you may have read about his mighty men that he had. He had the three who were really mighty, and then he had all the other ones as well. And they use this word mighty to describe them. Uh, All throughout the Old Testament, they're talked about like this. Uh, Gideon is actually referred to here in this prophecy. Uh, We read the words, uh, the Lord has broken the rod of your oppressor as on the day of Midian. That's a reference back to a man named Gideon when the people of Midian were oppressing the people of Israel. A messenger of God appeared to Gideon and and he said, rise up, O mighty man of valor, for the Lord is with you. And he rose up Gideon to break the power of Midian. It's hard that these two names rhyme and we get them all confused, but he rises up Gideon to fight the power of Midian so their oppressors are sent away. That same word, mighty, is used there. This is how we see that word used in the scripture of these mighty men who fight for God's people. In their coming king and Messiah, they hoped for a mighty man who would come and fight for them. A descendant of King David who would rise up and crush their enemies for them. 
And so they would expect Isaiah to say his name should be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty Man because he will be this mighty man who fights for us. But that is not what Isaiah says. His name is Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. Now, lots of people have God in their name in the Old Testament. If you ever see El, Daniel, or uh, Michael, uh, the El is usually God's name. Elijah, the El, is God's name. And so it's not uncommon for someone to have God's name in their name like this and not actually be God. And Jewish scholars today will say, hey, just because his name has God and it doesn't mean that this Messiah is going to be God himself. But all we've got to do is turn the page to the next chapter Isaiah 10, 21, and we'll see God use those very same words. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And that time, he's talking about God, right? And then another prophet, Jeremiah, will say, You show steadfast love to thousands. You repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them, O great and mighty God. So those words together are only used of our God. And so Isaiah's point here is that this coming saving king is not just going to be a mighty man who fights for us. He will be our God coming to fight for us. So those two threads, God is always fighting for his people and God raises up mighty men to fight for his people. In the person of Jesus, the mighty God and the mighty man become one. God in heaven fighting for his people, coming to earth, and unto us a child is born. So what Isaiah is saying here is that Jesus will be both Savior and God. He will not just be a mighty man, but he will be our mighty God. And the New Testament picks up on this as well. You're probably used to the New Testament saying, if you have read it a lot, uh, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That might sound familiar to you. Or our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Many times throughout the letters, especially, he's referred to like this. Both our God and Savior, or our Lord and our Savior. Because he is both the mighty one who comes to deliver us, and he is our God who has come to deliver us. He is both God and Savior. And so if last week when we saw that name Wonderful Counselor and we learned from it that Jesus can guide you in a way that only God can, when we see the name Mighty God, what we're learning is that Jesus can save you in a way that only God can. And so the call then is to look to this Jesus and to no one else for salvation. Now, the rest of the Bible will paint what that looks particularly like. And so I want to spend the rest of this morning asking, okay, what does it look like for him to show himself as mighty God when he was born and walked the earth? And then what does it look like in my life, right? He's gone now, but he will come back. How how does it look like to be saved by this mighty God? And then what will it look like when he comes back? Let's start with when he came to earth. How did he show himself to be mighty God, the one who can save us in the way that only God can? What do we learn about that from what we're celebrating here, him coming? Well, we see both of those threads all throughout the birth narratives of Jesus. He is God and he is the mighty man that God raises up to save us at once. Uh, 
John opens up his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word, and he's referring to Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. And then he goes on to say that in him is light and that light is the life of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. Referring the readers back even to this very passage, those who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Over in the Gospel of Luke, a prophet is risen up before Jesus to prepare the way, and it is said of him that he will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So he's preparing the way for this Messiah who's coming, but he's preparing the way for, for the Lord, because this Savior is also God. And when his mother Mary is told that she will be with child and she will bear this saving Messiah, we hear that he will save his people from their sins. And we hear that the child born will be called holy because she has never known a man. And so this child will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. He will be sent by God, anointed by God. He will save his people even from their sins. And he will be God himself born of a virgin. Mary then goes and she visits her cousin who is the mother of the prophet I was telling you about. And the cousin just beams out lauding worship of her and her baby. And she even says, who am I that the mother of my Lord should visit me? She acknowledges that this baby is God made man. And then Mary sings her song after this, and it is all about the mighty strength of our God that delivers the lowly and has even delivered her. And then the angels appear before shepherds after Jesus is born. And they roll all this together. Unto you is born in this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Everything Isaiah is calling for here, their Christ, their Messiah had come. He was mighty to save them and he was God all at once. No wonder wise men come from the east and they worship him. Because right? he's God, made man, come to save us from our sins. So the birth story tells us over and over again that he is this mighty God. God come to earth to save us and mighty man risen up to save us. And so you might expect, as the people of that day expected, I don't blame him, that he would grow up, he would come into power, he would pick up a sword, and he would go chase their Roman enemies all the way out of Israel. But that's not what he does. Uh, he goes and he walks around the cities and the countryside as essentially a homeless man staying wherever anybody will let him stay. And he starts healing people. That's the warfare. That's the deliverance that this mighty man is engaging in. And then he starts raising people from the dead. And they're like, huh. And then he says to a man your sins are forgiven. Like he forgives a man's sins on God's behalf. And the people go crazy. Like Pharisees are so mad because they're like, who can forgive sins but God alone, right? And of course, Jesus is just smiling saying, well, if you only knew, right? Because I am God, right? He can forgive sins. 
So he goes after much greater and much more cosmic enemies. He's not going after the Romans because, I mean, the Assyrians have already come and gone. By this point, the Romans are gone now in our time in history. He knows there are timeless mortal enemies that must be fought, like sin and all of its effects. As it is said of him, he will save his people from their sins. So we start to get a picture in his life that the enemies he is going to defeat are things like sin and disease and death and even Satan himself as he faces down Satan's temptation and does not fall. Then he does something that surprises everyone, even though he says many, many times that it's going to happen. Uh, He is arrested and is forced to carry a cross up a Roman hill and he's crucified and he gives up his life. And they're wondering, like, why is this happening? But he had, just the night before, picked up a a cup that we're going to celebrate today. And he said, this cup is is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, He was going to that cross to take on our enemies, to take on sin, and to take on death. Because he knows what your biggest problem is. Your biggest problem, our biggest problem, the reason the world is on fire is because we have all sinned against God and we all have brought all of this evil and suffering into the world. That is why sickness is in the world, that is why disease is in the world, that is why death is in the world, why people suffer. And that is why we must be forgiven by God to have a standing before Him. He says, I'm going to go conquer that enemy for you. And so he stares down Satan and he wins. He goes to his cross. He pours out his blood. He dies for our sins. And then we get the spoils of the victory. We can say, I'm forgiven of my sin. And so Isaiah says of him, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. The same kind of stuff he said in today's prophecy. Why will he get to, why will this Savior get to divide the spoils of war with many people? Well, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he bore the sins of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. So what he did was he defeated the power of sin over you in your life by by dying in your place to pay for your sins. And then, after he did that, he rose from the dead, defeating death for his people. And Colossians says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. 1 Corinthians talks about that resurrection. It says, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. He fought sin for you. He fought death for you. He fought suffering for you. And he beat them all for his people. And so the call is really clear. Every one of us must look to him for that salvation. He's died to pay for sins and he's risen from the dead and we look to him. That means then recognizing along with the world that something is wrong in the world and that the world needs saving. But it means 
breaking from the world and saying, not only does the world need saving, but I need saving. Not only has this world filled itself with injustice and oppression and sin, but I have filled myself with injustice and oppression and sin. And I deserve everything I have faced in this world. And then, looking to this holy God, and there's a point in the Gospels where Peter realizes that Jesus is the holy God. He, he tells him, put your, put your net in the other side of the boat and see how many fish you can get. And they put the net, and they get so many fish. Like Jesus does this great miracle. And Peter realizes how holy he is, and he says, depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Right? There's a, a sense in which we realize we do not have a standing before this God. A God that holy when we are this sinful is a terrifying reality. Uh, The way that Martin Luther said it, really frankly, was if you want to become saved, you must first become terrified. And there's truth to what he is saying. We have to see how great and powerful God is, how sinful we are, and how deeply we need to be saved. And then we hear that he has died to pay for sins. And he has risen to conquer death for us. And the soul that is ready and prepared just clings to him and cries out to Jesus. And the scriptures say, and and they that call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is our mighty God. There is our mighty man who fights for us. And my call to you is to call out to him for salvation. They that call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's what him showing himself as mighty God looked like when he came. What's it look like in your life now? Well, we're in this weird place now where he's died, he's risen, and then he's ascended up into heaven where he's reigning up in heaven. But he has not yet come in power. And so the full spoil of the victory is not yet divided up among the people. And so that means you're living in this time where you're walking in his ways and you're following him and his words are written down and we're following him. And we have the benefits of having been saved, but we don't have all the benefits yet of having been saved, right? A little down payment on it. Uh, there's a good uh, picture of this actually in a Broadway musical. I can't believe I'm about to quote Frozen in a sermon, but here we go. Uh, if you ever watch the Broadway version of Frozen, there's the point where the king and queen are, are lost at sea. And, and the bishop rises up because their queen now is this young girl named Elsa. The bishop rises up and says, I declare as bishop that we will honor their ways until our young queen comes of age. And so they enter into this weird period where they're going to honor the ways of the king and queen, but the actual queen has not yet risen up into her full power and her full glory. So they're just going to walk in her ways until then. And this is essentially where we are right now. Until our Lord, our King, our Savior King comes in his full glory and receives the crown and rules visibly, we're just walking in his ways and waiting for him to come back with some of the benefits of his salvation and rule. Practically what that means for your life, if you trust in him in the way I called you to earlier, is that Satan does not get what he wants from you anymore or even what he wants for you anymore. We probably don't take him seriously enough. Uh, What he wants for you is to allure you into as much sin as possible. Make sure you do as much damage to yourself and other people as possible while you're on this earth. 
He wants you to lure as many other people into sin as possible. Not because he wants you to enjoy it. The promise always falls through. But because what he really wants is for you to die in your sin and be punished and suffer forever for it. That's what he wants for you. And before mighty God came and rescued you, that was, that was your lot. That was where you were headed. He got everything he wanted out of you. When you were ruled by the passions of your body, he knew just what you wanted. And he knew how to lure you and manipulate you. And you have any way to say no. You just did whatever the passions of your flesh wanted you to do. And stored up judgment upon judgment as you damaged yourself and damaged other people. Oh, what a dark lot we all had. But we were in the darkness of oppression of a great enemy. Now, though... Our mighty God has come and he has saved us. And that light means, first of all, that you're forgiven of your sins. You don't need to bear guilt or any fear of judgment for your sins if you trust in Jesus. That alone is so powerful in this life because there are so many Christians who are plagued and haunted by one thing they did in the past or two really egregious sins they committed in the past, or one habit they used to have, right? So many of us are guarding a secret that if anybody knew, we'd be mortified, right? What my sister and I did together when we were young, that in the, in the second year of my marriage, I cheated on my wife and I never told anybody. There are Christians just plagued by that, right? That I, when I was young, I had an abortion and I never told anyone, just weighing on us. And part of why Satan lured you into that is so that he could turn it around on you and crush you with guilt now. He wasn't out to show you a good time. He wanted to use it against you later. If Jesus has forgiven us of our sins, though, if he has secured salvation and our mighty God has come and rescued us, that means that that enemy is destroyed. And that means that we don't have to walk around with guilt upon us for what we have done. It means that a Christian has the power and boldness to say, I have brought my sin to the Lord, and he has forgiven me. Now, now who the Son sets free is free indeed. That's the kind of salvation that our mighty God brings to us when he comes. So it means, first of all, then, freedom from any guilt in this life. You can bring all your sins to God and have full restoration with him any moment that you want to. Now, there may be other people you sinned against. You may want to be right with man as well, but between you and God, you can go right to him. But it means more than that, even. Not only does sin not have the power to crush you down with the things you've done in the past, but it doesn't have power to control you anymore either. No, what God does in this victory he's given us is he gives us his very power to fight sin in our lives so that now we can say no to sin. Now he gives us spirit-given self-control and joy and patience and peace so that no longer do you have to be a slave to sin and do what it tells you to do. No longer do you have to follow the passions and desires of your body. But instead, in spirit-given self-control, you can say, no, I'm not going to do that. For some, this comes in just a complete removal of a sinful desire you were once enslaved to. Some of you can tell stories like that. 
For others, the difficult desires remain, but God gives you strength to fight them. And as you win those fights, the desires get weaker. And then, sadly, for some of us, God gives us the power to fight that sin, but we don't use it, and we never really have a victory over it in this life. One kind of good analogy for that is is the way that some of our oldest members will talk about their past with smoking. Uh, The oldest generation here was raised in a world where everybody smoked, and if you were in the army, you got your rations, and they had whatever, a sandwich and some water and a pack of cigarettes in them, which is what everybody did. And then they started coming to Christ, right, as every generation does, and learning that these things are really bad for you, but now we're deep in the habit, right? And so, so many, especially Christian men who are in their 70s, 80s, 90s today, will say, when I was a young Christian, one of the hardest things was giving up smoking, right? And some of them will say, there was just a day early in my Christian life when the Lord just removed the desire from me, right? I just no longer wanted it anymore, and I threw the lighter and the pack away, and it was gone, right? I never wanted to go back. They don't all say that, though. Some of them will say, I kept wanting to smoke, and I kept wanting to smoke, and I kept wanting it, but the Lord gave me strength to fight against that desire and say no. And over years, I was able to quit. And still others will say, the Lord gave me strength to fight it, but I never quite kicked it, right? It's always just kind of lingered on, right? And that is a pretty accurate picture of what fighting sin in the Christian life is really like. Some of us, that desire you're enslaved by, just Lord just removes it. Thank God, right? It's not like that for everybody though, is it? Some of us, the desires stay there. And we fight them, and and we win over time. And others of us are still fighting, right? God gave us the armor, but we haven't put on all the armor, and we haven't slayed our sin just yet. So that's a little bit of what it looks like to no longer be enslaved to it. You have the power to fight against it. You have the power to say no. It means something else for us, too. It means you can live your whole life knowing that this life isn't all there is because you're going to rise from the dead, when Jesus comes back. Now, that's a fun thing to like sing about and to think about, but it really gets serious in pivotal moments in life. When when you find a lump where there's not supposed to be a lump, it matters that you're going to rise from the dead. Uh, When the the doctor is reading test results and and his face falls, um, it matters that you're going to rise from the dead, right? When, when your career and your plan for your career gets thrown off track and you realize that this life is not going to be the way you planned this life to be, it matters that this isn't your only life and you're going to rise from the dead. When the Lord turns your life upside down in this life, it matters that this isn't the only life and you're going to rise from the dead. And all of those setbacks and all of those surprises and all those times when our stories are cut short, we have a hope because the resurrection changes all of that. In the story of history, this life that you are living and I am living is just going to be a little sliver compared to the eternity we will have together with joy in his presence in a perfect world forever. And so, Everything can go wrong in this life because this life is not all there is. So a Christian gets then hope to go through all kinds of suffering and all kinds of sorrow because we have confidence that we are going to rise from the dead. 
That's a little bit of what it looks like to live in the salvation of our mighty God today. What we have to do in response is the same thing that the men of old did in response to their mighty men, right? David rose up and he slayed their enemies for them and kept Israel safe, and they sang songs, right? Oh, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands, right? Lifting up and lauding him. His mighty men would go and fight valiantly and they would boast and tell stories. Not the men themselves, but the people who they had saved would boast and tell stories of the great salvation that they had given them. And that is what Christians are called to do under the salvation of our mighty God who has come and saved us. We sing songs and chants with all that we have because our mighty God has come. And we boast and tell everyone what he has done for us, how he has saved us. This is so hard for us to connect with because, like I said earlier, we don't know war in our own land. We don't want to know what it's like to be delivered in our own land. Even something like 9-11 just shocked us because we're not used to being attacked on our own soil And so we don't totally know that feel of having a deliverer rise up and fight for us. But there is something in this world that can give you a feel of what that's supposed to be like. Uh, Any of you who are college football fans, or if you're a fan of international soccer, uh, you see the same dynamic play out on the field. The, The player is, first of all, superhuman, right? He's like seven and a half feet tall and 350 pounds of nothing but muscle, and is there even any bone or body fat in there? And Aaron Andrews or somebody is interviewing him and holds the microphone and then holds the way up there to him, because it's like these superhuman guys, right, who are out there playing for us. And everyone rallies around them and wears the gear, and man, when in the NFL, when Jonathan Taylor crosses that finish line, he doesn't score a touchdown, right? We score a touchdown, right, because he did it for us. And so the whole stadium just goes crazy, right? And even some of these particular elements, the chants and the cheers, if you go to a college football game, uh, I wish I could quote some of them for you, but most of them have language. But if you're from the South, you know, like Rammer Jammer, Yellow Hammer, and you know, Haughty Toddy, and all these chants and cheers that they will just shout out whenever their team scores or wins. They're doing that because their mighty man has gotten victory for them. Same thing happens in international soccer, and for some reason, all of those have language in them too. I could not find one that I could quote for you here that was worth quoting, Uh, but whenever the goalie makes the save or whenever the striker or the forward kicks the ball in the goal, that whole half of the stadium will just start chanting, da-da-da-da-da-da-da for them, right? Because their mighty man has secured the victory for them. They're not doing that for nothing. There are war and religious elements going on there. Uh, That is written on the soul of the human heart, to have a mighty man fight for you, win the victory for you, and for you to burst with a joyful cheer and chant. That is what we are doing here. We're not here to sing old-timey songs that we like. We are here to sing and shout the name of our mighty God who has come. That is also what we are doing when we are sharing the gospel with the people in our lives. 
If you're a Colts fan, you probably have no trouble going to work on Monday and saying, did you see that touchdown, right? Because you're, you're ready to boast about what your mighty man has done for you. And if your heart is connected with the way that Jesus Christ has saved you, has won the victory for you, in the same way, you should have no trouble going to work on Monday and saying, can I tell you what he has done for me, right? We rise up and we sing and we boast about our mighty God and our mighty man. That's how we respond in this life to the salvation that he has given to us. Last one. What will it look like when he returns and shows himself to be the mighty God? Well, in the same way that his birth showed that he was mighty God, his return does too. All kinds of great Old Testament imagery. Um, You might be familiar with uh, Nahum or Daniel uh, referring to God as riding on the clouds, right? Uh, One of them says that the clouds are are the dust of his feet, right? Like he just walks on the clouds. And another one says that he, he rides on the clouds, Well, that's God who does that. Now, when Jesus comes back, guess what he's doing? He's riding on the clouds. That's Old Testament imagery. That's a poetic way of saying he is God coming in victory. That's that's not just a cool picture that the never-ending story totally ripped off. Uh, That is Old Testament imagery that says he is God, and that's why he rides on the clouds. Not only that, but remember that story I told a little bit ago about Joshua. Uh, he, he comes and, and he stands like toe-to-toe with the commander of the army of the Lord, right? And it's this heavenly man who's speaking to him. It's very mysterious, very strange. And he says, are, are you for us or for our enemies? He says, no, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. And what Joshua does next, I didn't tell you all this, he falls face down and he worships the commander of the army of the Lord. Which is not all that strange, because whenever anybody sees an angel in the Bible, most of the time they fall down and they worship. And then the angel says, no, 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 you must not worship me. I'm just a servant of the Lord. I'm not the Lord. Stand back up. Don't worship me. But that's not what happens to Joshua. The the commander of the army of the Lord doesn't say, I'm not the Lord. Don't worship me. He says something we have heard before. He says, take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Only one person in the Bible says that. Only God says that out of the burning bush to Moses. So that's this commander of the army of the Lord, whoever he might be. Now in Revelation, when Jesus comes back, he's riding a white horse. That's what the commanders rode, the white horse. And... I'll give you one guess. What's following behind him? The army of the Lord. It was him the whole time who was fighting for his people. Glorious God and glorious man fighting for his people. So he comes back in a way that shows that he is this mighty God coming for his people. And right now we are in this weird time where we have salvation, but we don't have all of the salvation. And we're free from sin and death, but we're not free from sin and death. But all of that tension is going to be gone when he comes back. When he comes back, Christian, you will never sin again. 
and you will never go to another funeral again, and you will never have another bad doctor's report again, because sin and death and every other enemy that we fight will be gone forever. Yeah, now that's the hope that we are waiting for. And so I call you on one hand to trust in him for salvation, but on the other hand, I have to call you to wait for him for salvation when he comes in power. This is our mighty God, and I call you trust in him and wait for him.